today we power a variety of different products and modules within Platformy that address how does the factory optimize for a made-to-order? How does the logistics company optimize for a made-to-order? So we brought all the stakeholders in one to actually create an on-demand platform. So this can now be applied not just at the top of the pyramid, but actually at scale. Amazing. And that is what we you know, are very proud of today. This is What's Next podcast with you, Mindy Francis. We're talking fashion, business, and what's next. Let's go. Well, I'm so excited to be here in London today with my next guest, Ben Demiri. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. Hold that. I need to intro you. <laughs> <laughs> ben Demiri has held a number of roles in the corporate world over the past 16 years. In 2006, he began as CEO and director at Six London. In 2014, he became co-chair and co-founder as well as CEO at Platform. In 2018, Ben Demiri joined Monochain as an advisor. In 2020, he was appointed Chief Brand and Partnerships Officer at Twig, Principal at SLG Milano, and Partner at Skinvaders. In 2021, he became an advisor at Le Petit Planet. Finally, in 2022, Ben Demiri was appointed as an advisor at Faith Drive, one of my faves. Woo! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Ben Demiri to What's Next Podcast with you, Mindy Francis. Ben! Mindy, thank Seriously! You. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me and thank you for such a great intro. Honestly, these are all projects I love and founders I work with, so they're all close to my heart. And obviously, I tend to spend time with them, so for me, it's second nature. But actually hearing it, it does sound like quite a lot. So let's try to demystify that. It's not all... You know, bells and whistles. I can tell you a little bit more about um, some of them at least. Um, but just to say that obviously, um, I think throughout my career, I was fortunate enough to not only meet, but perhaps to also recognize and mirror the talent of others. And I think that is, you know, one of the biggest learnings that you have. You've got to recognize the other and its greatness, and you've got to try and mirror them. And that's how teamwork happens, actually. So. Right. I think it'll be tremendously inspiring to folks to just understand how one can multitask. I'm a multitasker. And when I often try to explain something to folks, they're like, how do you make that happen? How does it happen? And here we have proof. So let's get into it. You've worked at a number of corporate entities for the last 16 some odd years and currently yeah. hold various powerful positions at multiple companies in the present day. Walk our listeners through your professional journey. Tell us how you got here. So it, it's very interesting because I would say there is one factor that perhaps it's, it's universal to everyone. Nobody has to exercise it, but you've got to recognize it and act on it. And that was definitely my professional curiosity, right? Um, I've ended up in London uh, due to actually, you know, somewhat unfortunate circumstances. I'm Kosovar Albanian and I just simply couldn't go back home. Right. So then looking at the horizon, you know, and what was out there, I was always very compelled and interested in creative industries, despite of me training to be a scientist, which perhaps we can delve on a little <laughs> bit later on. Um, but I felt the true connection with the creative industries, particularly because of, um, I would say, sometimes the inability to channel um, the organizational side, the business side, 
where I felt I could perhaps contribute to this world and, you know, I can perhaps make it flourish, you know. And that's how it all ended up. So I took on a number of retail roles in the late 90s in London um, in predominantly luxury sector. So those were my formative years where I had the chance to really have a very uh, close uh, relationship with the industry and actually get, you know, um, under everything and understand how things are really done. Uh, I would say one of my formative roles was when I took on um, sales and marketing at a jewelry designer, which was a very cult jewelry designer back then called Lara Boeing. But she also happened to be one of the you know key freelance designers at Cartier. So today I still you know reminisce the time where I saw some of the most exciting designs that I see now on the Cartier shop floor coming out freshly from the printer. Wow! Um, so. I've been fortunate enough to to be exposed to a variety of different experiences that were both enriching and massively educational towards the next steps uh, in my career building. So that's how I started. Right. Um, and I did so by, you know, essentially working full time in the field and funding my studies. So I studied part time to become a molecular biologist. And I did graduate as that. Um, I did have, you know, short attempts at that as well, uh, only to find out that perhaps my passion lies in the other. So I have returned in business functions in the fashion industry there. Similar. (laughs) (laughs) Similar science background. So I know what that's like. And um, it's it's a point of discovery um, for you. And, And you go from molecular biology and working in that space, even in the nascent stages, to decide you wanted to do something more creative. Yeah, it was it was really an attraction at first sight, which was really uh, reaffirmed the moment I had a chance to graduate and double into um, research. It was a very comfortable role. I was conducting privately funded research, so funding, which is the main problem in scientific research, just wasn't a problem for me. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, it was also a journey of self-discovery where I really valued uh, human connections overall, and particularly the ones that perhaps the fashion industry fosters, that interconnectivity between everyone. Um, I was involved in a a laboratory-based research, and, you know, I felt somehow isolated, and I really wanted to return to action to where you could meet a lot of people, interact. And I've also discovered that entrepreneurial side that I had to obviously go back and exercise and flex. Got it. Got it. And that was my next question, the molecular biology <laughs> piece. But we, we we delved into that quite, quite easily and organically. It was an exciting time. I mean, when you look at, you know, late 90s, it was, you know, there was a lot of uh, big promise and premise of the whole biotechnology from, you know, um, food industry to healthcare, pharma, and that importance has not diminished. It just, for me, felt that lab-based research was perhaps not the best use of my time and contribution. And um, I'm happy to say that I think I made the right decision. Yeah, we're going to put a pin in that because I think there's an underlying thread in our experiences, (laughs) our early experiences and how that resonates in what we where we land. So tell our listeners about the company platform, the fashion tech company you helped start from the ground up. 
So that that's a very interesting journey that I hope your both listeners and viewers will you know find compelling. So and, and tell us what platform is, but yes, sure. So Platform E is a SaaS company, is a technology software company that essentially tackles through its activities and its through modular products the entire you know overproduction issue. So it is truly dedicated to a um, on-demand uh, offering and to power all facets of on-demand, you know, both offering and production in fashion. Um, so we, I founded that company in 2015 with Jose Neves, who is the CEO and the founder and the chairman of Farfetch and Gonzalo Cruz. Um, and since the very beginning, you know, I, I, Essentially, I worked with Jose for the past 15 years now in different capacities. And prior to Farfetch, um, he ran uh, Six London. Shortly, shortly after Farfetch, he asked me to step in as a CEO and run Six London, which I did for a number of years. And that was great learnings, essentially, as that company is dedicated to um, licensing and distribution. I learned a lot about supply chains. I learned a lot about um, the entire, you know, architecture and how the industry is organized. Um, the whole idea behind um, supply chains and um, forecasted inventory models, mm -hmm. which are a forecast in the end. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like any other business plan. Buyers would come and place orders. But they're based on, you know, sell-throughs um, that a lot of the time do not necessarily roll. So they have a hit and the next season they don't have it. And the whole thing moves, which also pertains to the whole magic of fashion, to that unpredictability. But at the same time, from an inventory point of view and from an organizational point of view, financial point of view, viewed from that lens, it's really, really hard because you're basing your entire business on a, a bunch of forecasts, which right. are like business plans, either underachieving or overachieving. Most of the time, they're underwhelming in a sense that there is a surplus of inventory and it propels the entire, you know, overproduction, you know, discounting, actually goods fundamentally losing value. Right. And you don't see that level of depreciation in many, many industries. I think it's somewhat quite unique to the fashion industry. So post-Farfetch, both me and Jose were compelled about doing something new. And we uh, love Jose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's amazing. He's amazing. He really is. Yeah, <laughs> a, a testament clearly here. Um, and um, we wanted to do something that would, you know, challenge that, but through also lens that would be easily adopted by the industry. So when we looked at how do we apply that, and we looked at different experiences that fashion industry, particularly luxury, has always enabled their customers to have. One of them is the ultra-personalization. So custom-made goods in luxury were always present for that part of the VIP customer, right? right. That was always there. Um, the problem is, as an experience, it's not open and it's not democratized to others. So we thought, why don't we democratize on demand with a level of personalization where, you know, we can power these experiences now and make them open for everyone to enjoy, not just being couture or VIP customer. And I have to say, we've exceeded, we succeeded to, to great lengths on that. Um, so today we count 
uh, a bunch of clients which are really great, starting from Hermes, Dior, Gucci, and so on, Fendi, and so on. Amazing, amazing. That's just such, uh, you know, wonderful to see a white space in the market and then create something that provides a solution. And that's what I love so much about the last 15 years because there's been so much of that happening yeah. and more innovation through tech and partnerships that are coming up to make this fashion supply chain process so much you know, better. And it needs to be delivered in, in our point of view in, in small, you know, bite-sized type of, you know, programs where Why they make that? sense for the brands, they make sense for the consumer, and it doesn't need a great deal of pivot to open up a whole new dimension and new door. Right. So we started as that, but today we power a variety of different products and modules within Platformy that address how does the factory optimize for a made-to-order? How does a logistics company um optimized for a made-to-order. So we brought all the stakeholders in one to actually create an on-demand platform. So this can now be applied not just at the top of the pyramid, but actually at scale. Amazing. And that is what we you know, are very proud of today. And there's no ceiling on it because you continue to iterate at each step of the way. As soon as you see a new problem, you, if there's a solution that you can provide, you guys are doing that. We are a technology company, yeah. so <laughs> iteration is, is a part of who we are. But, but yes, looking at it from a pollution point of view, I mean, not to overload this chat with stats, but you know, um, no, that's what we're here there's for. 92 <laughs> tons of you know clothing that fashion throws away on an annual basis, only one percent of fashion is actually recycled. Uh, we have to do something about it, and you know, you th both things are valid, overconsumption and overproduction. Um, brands and retailers, merchants overall would argue that, you know, um, it's the overproduction that drives, you know, um, overconsumption, but they're both valid. They both, you know, are, are Inform each other. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that was my next question. The fashion industry is finally catching up with its sustainable practices. I, I hope, I think. Why is it important for platform to strongly focus on drastically reducing overproduction and waste in fashion? And how are you doing that? And you're, you're perhaps through the customization, you're reducing the waste because yeah. it's it's bespoke. Yes, correct. That's one of the elements, but it's not the entire answer. Obviously, customization and hyper personalization or personalization at large pertains to a certain set of products, but it may not be applicable to everything. Um, our take on this is to really power on demand on all levels, from mass to fast to you know luxury, premium, all of the sectors, and not just to fashion, also to fashion and home industries, mm. which is obviously growing as well. And the idea is that we look at different formats of it, you know, and we try to plug in with our technology whether wherever there is a use case. There is an enormous, you know, shift now towards you know, small batch production, localized production, and really um, being able to essentially respond to an on-demand, you know, call from the client. So you put the product out um, and perhaps in a day or two additional to what you would get in a normal course of deliveries, you can actually have things made just in time. And we strive towards powering systems like that because that's how we really tackle this tons of clothes being, you know, thrown every year, goods essentially. 
uh, where just 1% are recycled. We've got to have a proper systematic and technological answer to that, you know, and that's what we strive to offer. So Platform Power's digital customization for luxury brands, we've established that. Hermes, Dior, Gucci, Fendi, Xenia, Sergio Rossi, as well as retailers such as Nordstrom and Farfetch. What is a typical day like working with such major luxury companies? How does that partnership work? Um, again, you know, not trying to um, make it overly complicated, you know, or complex. You know, I would my approach to this would really to try to demystify how that looks like. First of all, it's important to recognize that each one of these entities has an agenda, roadmap, criteria, KPIs that they need to achieve. And, you know, we work closely with them in achieving those. But they both essentially is all actually all united under, I would say, a single factor, which is striving to um, service the customer in the best possible way. And how do you define that today? You've got to respond to customer needs that are beyond transaction. You've got to deliver on elements that the consumer cares about, which is what's having, happening in society at large. They're more and more concerned about also sustainability. So we are a big part of um, a solution that comes into place to tackle that and to together collectively be a part of that task force that delights the customer. Because delighting the customer today, um, it's a continuous shift, right? It evolves. And today it means um, it, it, it's absolutely much more multifaceted than it was five or 10 years ago. Um, so that means that we work very closely with each and one of these entities in identifying you know, problems that they have. Sometimes it may lead also to a different set of extension to our solutions or sometimes even new innovation and products that we co-create together. So it's uh, really exciting, but essentially it's um, working together uh, and solving the problem of overproduction through creative means like we have been doing. Um, and also working together in identifying a new set of challenges and problems where we as a technology company can perhaps help them fulfill. Yeah, so you said by creative means, do you have an example of some a project that you've been excited about or proud of that you can share with our listeners? Sure, absolutely. It starts even from the very, very early days of you know launching Platformy. Um, we have an in-house sneaker brand called Swear, which actually comes from like 90s and, and Jose designed it. It was essentially rave shoes, you know, Even with Jose. big platforms. <laughs> yeah, many, many different incarnations, right? Um, but um, we use that as a showcase, as a text, test case for our technology. And uh, working with local retailers, they wanted to have a physical embodiment of how would that look like. And I remember we came up with this really creative solution, which is still out there on the internet, of course. Um, it's a four-faceted pyramid where one can key different options and a hologram pops up with the actual sneaker that they've designed that they can order in, in real time. Uh, so that was one of the creative solutions that we've done. We constantly actually innovate. Um, at the moment, we are in a process of you know, piloting and launching a platform that's essentially 
acts like a Slack for producers and brands to link together into real-time work, reducing the lead times, reducing the need to sample, back and forth on pricing, the admin time, and actually making them more efficient, efficient. but also more sustainable, which is really key for us. Amazing, amazing. Um, obviously, you've got a plethora of experience and really wise. What advice would you have to a... Um, a startup founder or any founder in the SaaS space trying to sell to a B, uh, a, you know, sell a SaaS idea or technology business to business to a company. I think there's some underlining um, threads that might be helpful and insightful when trying, when you have this idea and you're trying to garner this kind of business. I mean, you know, um, fashion luxury overall, particularly fashion fashion and luxury in specific when it comes to consumer goods, I would say I would single out, is notoriously difficult to penetrate. Uh, you know, if you are not a part of the network or if you don't know where to go, etc. So um, advice to those that do not have the luxury of the network and they have to start somewhere, I would say be very, very critical to the problem that you're solving because Sometimes, you know, the industry can be slow to react. So you, you can indeed solve a problem, but it may not get any airtime, you know, right. out there. And it might not be seen as relevant until it's acute. Be patient <laughs> because your time will come. But at the same time, you know, uh, I would say one of the things that I see from tech founders trying to cater for the industry is that sometimes there can be that classic tone deaf aspect on both sides of the mm -hmm. equation. And unfortunately, the industry is so systemic that you need to work it through, right? So my advice to founders would be try to identify it and try to identify and try to clearly vocalize the problem that you're solving. Um, truly listening to the other side and trying to come as as approximate as possible to whatever they're trying to solve today, you know, versus in day after tomorrow, which is right. typically the tech approach. It's not even the problem of tomorrow, it's the day after tomorrow <laughs> problem. And fashion, as we know, you know, they can scrape collections, you know, a week before the show and start all over again. And there is this very strange resilience and, and you know, scrapping and starting again. So sometimes things, un unless they're really immediate, can truly, you know, lack planning long term. And I think as an industry, it's trying to reconfigure itself to avoid that. And I actually commend that. It's the right approach. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's move on and talk about the company Twig. I read that Twig is listed as one of Europe's fastest growing fintech companies. Yep. What is Twig and what makes it so special? Uh, Twig uh, is um, the next generation in fintech. I truly mean that. Um, it is essentially a, a way in which its users can um, list, uh, value the wealth, and also release, you know, liquidity, release instant value from things that they never knew that had any value. And that's very, very powerful. It's essentially a call to revisit the notion of wealth and what does that mean 2023 and forward. Um, in short, uh, Twig users can, you know, um, list all their assets on Twig. They can value them instantly and they can turn them in cash at any point in time. 
Now that in itself is a massive, massive convenience, as we know, we can all do with a bit of that. But the buck does not stop there. It's in essence, it's a circularity driven service. It, and circularity is very much the reason to be rather than afterthought, where you're simply giving the chance to users to release value out of something that maybe they wouldn't understand the value of or throw it away in the worst case scenario. So landfill is the ultimate enemy of Twig, and it's got a great success in terms of challenging that. So the motto is don't bin it, twig it, and release value of things that you own, or at least understand you know, what, you, what is the worth of what you own. I think that's a very healthy way to look at finance today. Um, and if you look at the new generation uh, of, say, Gen Zers and younger millennials, um, many of the generation you know, would have maybe tons of cash, but they all have things, right? And the idea is also when they buy things, they want to understand what is the resale value of those right. things. So they're much more aware of the idea uh, that ownership of their goods can be released at any time and release value. And Twig very much operates within those parallels. Um, and I'm personally very passionate about that. Yeah. That's definitely yeah. the next chapter. So you became Twig's chief brand and partnerships officer a little over two years ago. What has it been like to take on such a position and strategically, what was your vision? Um, well, I think, again, to demystify here, I've had uh, a predecessor relationship with the founder of Twig through Monochain, where I was advising that business. Um, and right in the middle of pandemic, uh, he was incubating Twig um, and it sort of was happening right in front of my eyes. And as the world was practically falling apart, so uh, so it needed also new answers to how we look at things. It was really a very, you know, introspective call on most, uh, definitely on, on most of the industries to really revisit the very, you know, foundation of what they stand for how will the next set of services look like? How will the consumer respond next post-pandemic? Um, so it was a very interesting time to incubate this project. And the more I saw, uh, the more I loved about the company, what it stood for, the overall offering. Um, for me, the most exciting part was understanding its aggregate value. Once you understand it, its aggregate value, this you know, quasi-infinite type of growth that yes. it could have. Uh, but ultimately, a growth that, you know, enables all the stakeholders to be at win, especially the environment, I could not but join the company, you right. know, in some ways. So I initially joined Twig as an investor, as an angel investor, and gradually I took on, you know, different roles. And I've been an exec now since pretty much a year and a half ago, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. I just know there's so much, um, so much excitement in this, you know, and seeing this change. So this is very interesting to me. I think in the last couple of years, it was all about um, digital assets, NFTs. And now the conversation is, you know, went to AI and then chat GPT. What has been, um, I'm not, everyone's asking like, what do you think about AI? I want to, what do you think about the last 36 months with all this innovation in technology and the need and, and desire for 
or the sense of urgency or the FOMO created in companies to attach their strategies to any of these new technologies or how how has that affected your business businesses? Well, first of all, I think there is a it's fair to recognize there is a spectrum of opinions around AI. Um, and I didn't spend too much time on it, but I did sort of sample a little bit of that opinion making around from experts that come from Google, et cetera, et cetera, right? Key opinion leaders. And, you know, the thread is, okay, there are clear messages there of AI is a great servant, but bad master, noted. Perhaps we need to slow down and understand it better, noted. However, no one can argue its potential to actually better our lives in many, many different areas that are severely underserved. For me, you know, when you look at, you know, healthcare, for example, the ability to, de to detect, you know, terminal diseases much earlier with the ability to intervene, um, the ability to dispense medication that is highly uh, personalized. One would ask, why is medication not highly personalized at this point in time? That's we true. all have different bodies. We ha all have different makeups. We have different elements of lacks and what we need. And so so why shouldn't that be personalized, right? right. So when you look at things like that, um, overall, I would say not to be too reductive, but the way I see AI is definitely as an optimization tool. Absolutely. Um, and uh, there was an analogy of someone mentioned this expression, which particularly resonated with me. I believe that AI will be a co-pilot. We will all have our own co-pilot, but it will not replace us. And particularly when it comes to that creativity and human form of expression and the surprise element, right? That comes with the territory. Um, but I also recognize that perhaps, you know, we need to just understand it better and have the right governance around it. That's for sure. You know, there needs to be a lot more regulation, you know, on privacy, data, what is shared, and so on and so on. Yeah, that's that's the next frontier. It be it will be interesting to see how um, governance will be applicated to all of these respective areas. It's not an um, an easy task, and I just think that you know, in all of the governments around the world, it's such a, a burden, so to speak. Another thing to add to the list that it's kind of pushed to the to the back burner, but it's moving. You know, and so while there isn't governance, there's a lot of time for innovation and creativity. Well, I think that also exposes, you know, the lack of perhaps technological acumen in our governance, right? Bingo. <laughs> there needs to Talk be, about it. You know, it's moving much faster than politics and governments do, you know, and uh, I think there has to be an acumen to be able to understand, assess and regulate in an adequate way. Let's hope it happens very soon. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So another one of your many job titles is partner at Skinvaders. Skinvaders was founded in 2020 and is the world's leading platform for digital in-game branded assets. Tell us about that, this exciting new company, and what should we look out for? So Skinvaders is basically a, a unit within Platformy that was, again, organically born, um, sort of just before the pandemic started. And, you know, when we looked at how we were building value for our clients at that point in time, we were, you know, powering digital goods, essentially, 
for consumers to personalize that would then be fulfilled physically. So, for example, you would be on farfetch.com or fendi.com and order handbag to your liking, uh, which would be a digital product per se, but then you would get the real bag, right? Right. But then we started thinking, what can we do to build value for our ecosystem, you know, from digital goods as a form of IP? And of course, there was a lot that was sort of the expression at the very inception. So when we looked at everything such as, you know, using digital goods for maybe on social media. So I don't know, one can use a designer frock and, you know, that disappears over after a certain period of time. So we did a lot of, you know, brainstorming around what that could be. But looking at it, we've identified gaming as an avenue that was already developed, you know. Um, essentially, three out of five, you know, uh, gamers that use skins in a game buy those skins. So those transactions are happening on unbranded skins, whether we like it or not. Right. And when we really scratched the surface, we understood there were very, a lot of these skins were sold as generic, unbranded skins, but they had a big reminiscence with designer, you know, brands. So there was a question of also protecting IP there, and there was that angle of legitimacy. So for us, uh, it became very apparent that gaming is already a highly commercialized mm -hmm. type of field where the adoption is likely to be high. Uh, again, four out of five of those gamers that are using skins change them frequently. Right. Uh, and with over 92% of them being happy to pay for it. Right. So these are things that, these are the stats of the market. It's happening and it was, already. It's happening already. And we were sitting on a catalog of some of the most coveted goods, you know, that we have interpreted digitally. Uh, so for us, it was just a healthy extension. Yeah. So we work with uh, gaming publishers on one side and obviously brands on the other. To connect the dots. Correct. I love it. I love it. That's so great to hear. <laughs> so um, I was just going to say, how, how does it work? But you just explained that. So can you explain how Skinvaders is helping to change the way we live our everyday lives and also how we communicate with others? You know, we are now post-social media very acutely aware that our interconnectivity really spans to different forms of digital connections yes. as well as physical ones, right? Um, gaming is a very, very big and strong community where if you look at, really, if you zoom out for a moment and you look at the biggest technology companies, you know, from Google to Apple, the strive is really to build technology that seamlessly enters your life, your living room, without any of the barriers of technological friction, right? Yeah. Uh, a good example is the, you know, Alexa and, you know, the um, Apple speaker and now, you know, the, the headset, the virtual pro. Um, and something like this gives brands and concepts the opportunity to market themselves prime time in front of one of the biggest audiences and a, a really truly an international community um, in their living room. Uh, and, you know, when you put dollars to that, when you compare it, say, to TV or any different form of advertising, it's extremely efficient right. in terms of building the next set of expression 
helping those people express through your brand, uh, create a different type of loyalty um, and create a community. So yeah. that's what we help them do. And to Skinvader users, well, fashion, one of the key notions is, you know, to make you feel great about yourself and to help you express. And that certainly applies to gaming where, you know, gamers want to wear, you know, uh, skins that would reflect of who they are, or who they want to be. How do they want to express in that world? And why not do it with their favorite brands? Yeah, I think what's so wonderful about what you're saying is that uh, we're, we're talking about niche communities um, that in aggregate amount to a whole lot of business. And I think that um, a lot of brands overlook the promise and opportunity of how their businesses can grow and stay innovative and um, expand their reach to their consumers in other ways without looking to these new technologies and things of that nature. And that's a great thing about a company, uh, you know, a, 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 an offering like Skinvaders. Thank you. Yes, I, I really think it's going to be about that. It's going to be about, as we often say, going where the fire is. Consumer today is very, you know, mercurial. They are everywhere, and it's a question of identifying where where is the next set of consumers spending time? What are they passionate about? You've got to answer those things as a company, as a business, and particularly as a, say, a fashion business or branded goods where you are very much public, right? You've got to resonate, and to be able to resonate, you really need to meet your customer where they are. Right. And what do you think is important in, you know, with, in all these enterprises that you have your hands in? What do you think is important about building and cultivating a team around you um, to balance these different areas or in each respective company? If you asked me this question 10 years ago, I probably would have given you a different answer. But as a near 45 year old now with a fair amount of both business and a great deal of startup experience, and I call it dog years, you know, because it's everything is just so Fact. accelerated, <laughs> exacerbated. You see a lot. You see like four seasons in a day, sometimes times three. And you've got to be as a leader ready for a pace like that and, you know, highly adaptable. Um, I think it's very important to recognize the whole sort of strengths and weaknesses, but not weaknesses. I see them as opportunities because when one recognizes you know, what we perhaps not great at or what we simply not too interested to spend time in, it allows us to build that, you know, A-list team where you've got to recognize your limitations as a leader. I think that that is one of the biggest learnings for me. And normally, you know, at least in early days of ambition and, and all that building, we're not necessarily trained to do that. We're trained to manifest superiority of some kind that we are different from others or that we can handle more than the rest or mm -hmm. that we can take on tasks that are maybe not perfectly suited for us but we will find that challenge and you know make we will happen. make it happen not true to a great extent um, the best leaders I've seen they were actually very aware of their own limitations so they would try to curate their environment mm -hmm and actually bring a very complementary skill set that would enable those uh, differences really complete. And that's when you become as a whole, as a team, 
as an entity and as a business. So I would say to all the people that are starting out there, be okay with you know your limitations and focus on on those parts where you really excel and allow others to express the rest because there's there, then there's going to be room for others, right? Yeah. And that's what's wonderful about teamwork. Yeah. So in your business, uh, your corner of the earth that you've carved out in all these categories, what are you excited about? Like what's next to you? Yeah, for for me, uh, I'm always passionate in the end about consumers. And even in the end, when you look at all of my activities, yes, there's a whole bunch of B2B businesses, but they're always a B2B to C. And I always mm. think about what is the C going to be excited about? How are they going to see this new service or a new proposition? Are they going to be like, holy I'm going to be using this right away. How come this never existed before? So when you look at, you know, all those great pieces of technology, new services, you know, you can't imagine your life before then. You know, uh, just a couple of weekends ago, I was with my wife in Portugal. We were at the wedding and we were in a new small town. We didn't know anything about. We had about an hour to find a place for lunch. Google fixed it, you know, we made it happen, Uber got us there, and you just think, wow, if this happened 10 years ago, we wouldn't have made it, right? right? So we managed to pack in so much thanks to technology. It facilitates our life. Again, we shouldn't be threatened. I see it as a, as a great facilitator to, you know, alleviate us from those menial tasks, right? So going back to your question, sorry, I've derailed. No, you, I, I love, I, Think the same way. Yeah. I, I, the B to B to C. I'm always like this. You don't know how many people miss that. You know, a B to B business is ultimately for the C. Correct. <laughs> I just never heard anybody else say exactly. it. Actually, that's a piece of advice to to software um, yeah. founders. You've got to think there's always a C on the other side of your client. And unless you have a very clear proposition onto where you build value for that C for them, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, know, there's to, friction together. and companies fail and they don't know why. And that's why. <laughs> often. Yes. Yeah, often. Not all so, the time. Not all the time, <laughs> but but often that's the case. Going back. So I'm very passionate about the consumer. And I think today is going to be all about interconnectivity. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's again about having a constant dialogue with your customer and acknowledging your customer for who they are. That famous know your customer, KYC. KYC. I can honestly, hand on heart, say that it's kind of failing most of the time, disappointingly also at the very luxury level. But it's time to recognize and to really embrace your true customer, mm -hmm. who they are. So for luxury companies, a customer that is buying your perfumed boots is also your customer, just like the one that's coming in the store and buying, you know, uh, a limited edition bag, right? right? And I think that's where it's all disparate, you know? It's not really looking at the consumer with a, you know, healthy lens and embracing them for who they are, where they are. So meeting them, you know, in the trajectory where they're spending time and actually having an interconnectivity will be crucial. And that's where value will be built, including around product, providing them assistance, not just when they're buying, but pre-sale, after-sale, continuing dialogue around also the life cycle of the product and helping them also with the disposal option one, once the life cycle is finished, helping them recycle that and maintaining a continuous contact 
providing the service for that product. Right now, it's product. It's service is really skewed. And I think that's where it's going to be, you know, working with your customer wherever they are, meeting them at those points and actually truly acknowledging them and working with them. So what I'm hearing is that data is really important. Correct. Capturing the data. Correct. Understanding the data, manipulating the data, using the data. And luxury has been slow to be innovative. I'm impressed with what I'm seeing out there now, to be honest. Great. After being around for some time, but there's a long way to go. And data is important. And um, I, what I'm hearing is you wish more brands would pay attention to that. It's I think they have to. And you see like some new innovators that come perhaps from different fields that do it you know, in an amazing way, in a format that's really, truly refreshing. Like one of my favorite case studies that I keep mentioning is Fenty Savage and Rihanna. You know, that content was highly entertaining. And I thought, my God, you know, millions and billions of people even see this content yeah. or can be exposed to this versus a fashion show, right? Right. Uh, and there you go. There is a partnership with potentially one of the best logistic companies in the world amazon so what you see you can shop real time and have it delivered in a couple of hours Exactly. i mean you know there is something to be said there so kudos to rihanna she's done that very very well and i think she can teach the industry a thing or two i think they've learned yes. <laughs> learning by doing um it's been it's being a marketer it's been great to see these case studies and observe um and i'm glad that you're calling upon them because it is something something interesting to be whole so I have one more question for you. I think that um, since you're you, you're the inside man, um, <laughs> do you think enough luxury brands have an adequate data team to assess, you know, these data scientists to assess the consumer buying behavior? Are they manipulating and using it in the appropriate way? Or are they just collecting it and it's just sitting there like check the box? We we did the the you know the the uh, NFT project, done, we're in the space. We did the AI project, you know what I mean? Uh, I think there is, um, it, it's a very complex question because to answer that, perhaps we need another session altogether. And I want to be very careful here because at the same time, I've spent a lot of time with the executives. I've, I value yeah. the industry and, you know, the whole craftsmanship side of things. And, you know, there you go. That's something that perhaps AI can't just copy, right? Right. Um, but it can help us optimize things. It can help to help us, you know, communicate better with our customers, with our suppliers, and so on and so on, like optimize how we do things. Um, but essentially, there are some inherent problems that are very traditional of the industry. I see it also as an opportunity to pivot. I believe that pivot will happen gradually. Yeah. It will happen with a healthy influx of new, fresh perspectives, diverse thinking, and diversity overall, which I'm very happy to see the industry slowly being awakening to. Yeah. Um, and with that, I think, you know, as an industry, luxury and fashion specific can be as competitive as the, as the other industries. But it's more of a mindset thing rather than inability to have tools in place. Right. It's actually recognizing the importance of the shift that has to happen because the consumer has been ready for a long time and tolerating the sluggishness to a certain point. Yes. And uh, you see it, you see it in recruitment. You know, I'm working with a lot of Gen Z at Twig and they, you know, want to consume luxury but not necessarily work in luxury. 
which was, you know, the opposite when I started out mm -hmm. 25 years ago, right? It was aspirational to work in a field. Not so much because I think the young generation see the flaws. And I think until the industry has that minimum measure of fixing certain acute points, it's going to struggle. But I'm really hopeful with, with the influx of new, fresh executive thinking that perhaps is somewhat n not an incumbent, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's going to be um, this facilitator, this catalyst to move things on. So I think it's more of a question of mentality, honestly. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm also very empathetic to leadership at all of these, you know, luxury houses and conglomerates around the world because in the last decade, 15, 20 years, um, the, the workload hasn't changed. It's just double, quadruple with the needs that happen. You still have to do the things that you did years ago, but now there's new, you know, new things to add to the list um, in terms of, you know, growth. Absolutely. But and sustainability only, yeah. in terms of maintaining the, your cashing and business. The only way to achieve that is to allow a fresh perspective to come in and to start recognizing your customer. That is a big critical point that I see as a massive flaw with the industry. Start talking to your consumer, to the person that's buying your perfume at Boots, you know? They are also your customer, you know? And I think that part, it's going, going, gone. That thinking of, you know, there is this imaginary customer and, you know, we are gonna keep this prestige, you know, based on that. It's it's not really, you know, going to work in the future. It's all about inclusivity and actually recognizing somebody's business, no matter how small or big, or I'll stop making those categories, right? Right. <laughs> right? It, it's only fair, right? If you don't want to you do that and engage, then, you know, stick to a, you know, high ticket. But no, actually, you'll find that most of the customers come from that bottom of the pyramid, that wide you know, variety of products, which are fast moving consumer goods. And I think it's it's really, really important to look at your consumers as a whole and recognize them and work with them. So once again, maybe watch Rihanna. She'll teach you. <laughs> yeah. Ben, you speak my language. <laughs> it's been so fascinating having this conversation with you here today. So insightful, so exciting to me. This is my jam. Thank you. So I'm, I'm happy to be here in London to just share these insights with someone who gets it. And I know that those listening will have learned a lot from this conversation as well. I hope so. And you're welcome anytime. Yeah. We, we like you in London. <laughs> Sincerely, I'm very excited about the next frontier. And I look forward to what our next chat is going to look like. Yeah, we have to have another. There's so right. much more that I didn't touch upon, but we have limited time. Uh, so we'll have to do this again. Uh, ben, tell our listeners how to find you i'm sure they want to follow along um it's honestly linkedin is the easiest i awesome. use that professionally i'm not I'm, I'm an instagram voyeur so i i like to see where my friends are at but i barely post much um so linkedin is where i'm the most active professionally and i try to actually respond to everyone even to the ones that sometimes solicit professional services anything i can be helpful there is a slight delay, but I tried to get back to everyone. So. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank it's you, been wonderful Mindy. having you here. Thank you. I'm Yumindi Francis, and this is What's Next Podcast. See you soon. Bye.